So I think it's pretty safe to say that everyone here woke up this morning. Okay, everybody with me? Yep, I know that sounds like Captain Obvious, but don't be on. So you all, I woke up this resurrection morning. This is Resurrection Sunday. It is like the highest day of the Christian calendar. This past week, we call it Holy Week or Passion Week. It starts off with Palm Sunday, last Sunday. Ends with Jesus in the grave on the Sabbath after his death on Good Friday that we celebrated Friday night. So just stop and think before we dive into Mark 5, before we consider these things, like how utterly unlikely it is that a poor Middle Eastern carpenter would have more impact on the world than any other human being before or since. Why has Jesus had such world-shaping influence? And how important is the resurrection to that influence. So Jemmy read from Mark chapter 5 about the raising of Jairus' daughter. What does this text have to do with waking up this morning with the resurrection of Jesus? Okay, so we've got several questions swirling here. Keep those in mind, and hopefully it'll all come together by the end here. So look again at the end of that passage that Jemmy read from. Mark 5, and look at verse 39. And when Jesus entered, he said to the mourners, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means... Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. So the miracles of Jesus were not magic tricks. They weren't publicity stunts. He never said, watch this, just for the attention, okay, or just for the thrill of it. His miracles were acts of love and compassion. And they were previews of the healing and the restoration to come. They were like movie trailers for the blockbuster that has its opening night set for when Jesus returns. So they were like the future healed world breaking into the present, into this broken, cursed world. So Jesus did miracles. He cast out demons to bring restoration to people's lives. When he renewed people, his miracles foreshadowed, they were like a preview, a foretaste of the day when he would return and make all things new. One theologian wrote this, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he's driving out the creation, he's driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God to which the healings witness restores sick creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is now unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Finally, with the resurrection of Christ, the new creation begins with the resurrected, crucified one. 
So if that's true, what might the resurrection of this little girl point to? So certainly it was a wonderful, marvelous act of compassion to this family. Love toward this family. I mean, imagine being this child's parents. But it's also a sign pointing to who Jesus is and why he came. This little girl would die again. So what does this resurrection, this little girl, point to? And, and why did Jesus say that she was just, just sleeping? He knew that she was dead, so why did he say it that way? And I'm sorry for the wind on the microphone. Okay, we're all going to just have to deal with that, right? Okay. So let's consider Jesus' resurrection, and we're going to kind of look at things in two points this morning, kind of keep it simple, because we don't have notes and screens and outlines and all that this morning. So first point is waking up to resurrection morning. The second point is waking up on resurrection morning. Okay, so first point, waking up to resurrection morning. And it's just, what happened? Like, we've got to wake up, we've got to come alive and be aware of and awake to what happened 2,000 years ago on that resurrection morning when Jesus rose from the dead. So he was humble and meek. He did many mighty works and taught with authority. But listen, don't let his humility fool you. He made audacious claims to divinity. He got on the wrong side of the Jewish leaders, their um, expectations and the religious establishment, and it got him killed. So they thought he was a blasphemer. They thought he was, he was a, an imposter, a false messiah. They were jealous of him as well. They didn't look how he... Oops, they didn't like how they, he made them look bad. That's good. Thank you. Um, so they had him crucified, right? We knew that. So he's crucified on this cruel cross. He's humiliated, tacked up on a public thoroughfare, probably naked to make a spectacle, a lesson of you. You know, Caesar's Lord, and don't you ever forget about it. But he didn't stay in the grave, right? He rose again. And it's remarkable, the first witnesses were women, okay, in the, in the first century. Sadly, the testimony of women was not considered credible evidence in a court of law, whether that be a Jewish court or a Roman court. So their would, word would have automatically been viewed with suspicion. So if you're trying to rate some propaganda, this is not a good way to do it in that day and time. Literally nothing to gain, everything to lose, unless you're recording what actually happened, which is what the gospel writers are doing. So again, strong, this is strong evidence of the reliability of the gospel accounts. And it's beautiful evidence of, of God honoring women in that context. So, the women come to the tomb, they see that the stone is rolled away, it's empty, these angels are there and say, Jesus is risen, just like he said. So they run back to the disciples and tell them the news, and you know how they're, you know, the response, the reaction? You guys are crazy. <laughs> they thought it was an idle tale. Like, you're delusional. This is impossible. They did not expect this. I think sometimes we can look back and think that they were gullible or naive in our scientific age. But they didn't expect a, re a, a resurrection. 
and they thought that the women were crazy, speaking crazy talk. So something must have, have happened that was just absolutely <laughs> remarkable because those same disciples who thought the women were crazy ended up, in most cases, dying violent deaths for Jesus, claiming that he had risen again. So Pascal once said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. So if they knew it was a hoax, if they had invented this, if it was a bunch of propaganda created and spread by them, would they really die for it? No. Makes no sense at all. So that's what happened. We need to come awake to that, the significance of it. You know, maybe we've grown up in the church and heard about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. This is earth-shaking. It changes everything. In fact, a, a historian named Yaroslav Pelikan, he taught at Yale, he once said, if the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, then nothing else really matters. If the resurrection of Jesus did not actually happen, then nothing else really matters. You see what he's saying? If the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, it changes everything. It's like the most important thing that's ever happened on planet Earth. Nothing else matters like this matters. But if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then nothing else in Christianity really matters. I mean, if this life is all we have, if we are all just a result of random chance and mutations, then nothing really matters. Like, it can seem like things matter, but it's really just the result of cold, impersonal, random, unguided, evolutionary mechanics that don't have any real cosmic transcendent significance. Okay, we're just all a bunch of accidental bodies in an accidental universe trying to pretend that our lives have some greater significance when really it's just the accidental development, you know, of brain chemistry that causes us to experience things in certain ways and call them meaningful. If the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, then nothing else matters like this matters. If the resurrection of Jesus did not actually happen, then you know what? Nothing else really matters. But it did happen. And it means everything to us. It should mean everything to us. Jesus dealt death's death blow. He died in our place for our sins on the cross as Savior and mediator. He cried out, it is finished. Imagine if he cries out, it is finished, like I paid the debt for your sin for all who will trust in me, and then he doesn't rise from the dead. Just dismiss it. It means nothing. But if he rose again, that changes everything. You can't be indifferent or ambivalent or wishy-washy about the cross and the resurrection. Either Jesus is everything or he's nothing. Okay, sure, some people, you know, you know, maybe they don't believe he rose from the dead, but they like some of his teachings, how he stood up to the religious establishment, called out their hypocrisy. I like that about Jesus. But if you don't accept the meaning of the cross and the resurrection, you're actually trifling with Jesus. You're patronizing him by just liking a few selective teachings. He didn't come and die and rise to be selectively liked. 
You know, like Instagram. Like, I like that one. Like that one. No, he came to be Lord. Lord of our lives, Lord of the universe. He said crazy things. Like, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. me. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me, he shall never die. Do you believe this? Crazy things. He also said, if anyone wishes to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Like, this is a human being saying this. You can imagine this is crazy unless he's really God in the flesh, unless he's really Lord of all. So he is Lord. He is not to be trifled with, but he is not Lord in order to ruin your life and suck all the joy out of it. No, he is Savior and Lord in order to give you true and eternal life. Listen, Jesus is everything. And we can have him, we can have peace with God, reconciliation with God because he died and because he rose again. So he died on the cross for our sins. You trust in him. You turn from your sins. I made a mess of my life. That's all I can do. The only thing I come to the table with is my sin. Jesus takes that on the cross in our place for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God. He rises again, making it clear that that debt was paid. The check cleared. Paid in full. And all the promises and all the hope and all the grace can be yours if you're trusting in Jesus. So this is who Jesus is. This is why he came. So what does the resurrection mean? It means that, here's in, in the words of C.S. Lewis, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This makes all the difference in the world for us. Certainly for eternity, but also for this life. I, I think it's probably true that every Easter, every Resurrection Sunday, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. So, if you're not familiar with who that is, she's 72 years old now, and she's been a quadriplegic since a diving accident when she was 17. Listen to what she said back in 2013. She said, I can still hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from my shoulders down, will one day have a new body. Light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone spinal cord injured like me? 
or someone who is cerebral palsy, brain injured, or has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive, and we could go on and on. No other religion, she says, no other philosophy promises new bodies, new hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. So do you see how precious the hope that was won at the resurrection is to us? Like how precious it precious is it for persons born with debilitating disease or disability or who suffer traumatic injuries and become disabled? How precious is it for the person who's made terrible mistakes and is plagued every day by regret and shame? How important is it for those who've been abused and traumatized? How important is it to know that there's an actual reckoning to come? That justice will ultimately be served, especially for those who have suffered injustice that can never be made right in this life. Or how important is it for someone who gets sick at a young age and faces an early death? Or how important is it for a person who's been confined to a small room in a nursing home for the remainder of their days? How important is this hope? Do you see what the resurrection means? Here is hope, real, eternal, unshakable hope. Josh read that passage in 1 Peter that speaks of a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That hope is the basis of our hope every day. And it's an anchor for our souls when we're blown and tossed in the storms of this life. Like it says in the book of Lamentations, in the midst of the hardest times, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That is ours if we are in Christ. If Christ is ours and we are his, then we have the steadfast love of the Lord in Christ. His mercies are ours. They are new for us every morning. We can never dry them up because we used too many yesterday. He's a self-replenishing supply and his faithfulness is great. So that's what it means to wake up to the resurrection, to resurrection morning, the meaning of it, the significance of it. Now what what do I mean by point number two, waking up on resurrection? So in plenty of cultures, not just ours today, sleep has been used as a euphemism for death, right? Everybody know what a euphemism is? Okay, it's like an indirect or more delicate, perhaps more tactful expression that's used in place of something that would be more blunt or sometimes more accurate of a description. So sometimes we do this to avoid the awkwardness or the unpleasantness or the offensiveness of a blunter expression. So it can be employed to avoid taboo, um, just to be more discreet. So we use the word restroom. Restroom. Bathroom. You know, water closet. Was that a British expression? You know, there's plenty of euphemisms for bodily functions. We're not going to review those right now. 
But, you know, it's not a, an annoying telemarketer. It's a courtesy call. You're not old. You're seasoned. I'm not sick. I'm feeling a little under the weather. I'm not unemployed. I'm between jobs. I didn't vomit. I tossed my cookies. I'm not sure how that one helps. I don't know what the etymology of that one is. He's not drunk. He had a few too many. Or to start to get a little more serious, we had to put our cat to sleep instead of euthanize. Maybe even euthanize is a euphemism. In fact, I was looking up examples, and one writer wrote, put to sleep. When an animal is hurt or injured, it may be euthanized or put to sleep. The writer couldn't even get herself to say, put to death. So, death actually has a number of euphemisms, doesn't it? They're no longer with us. He passed away. He was laid to rest, which means he died and was buried, right? So sleep is a euphemism. It's actually used for, for death in the Bible. He slept with his fathers, okay? Means he died and joined his ancestors in the grave. So sleep is a euphemism for death. It makes sense, doesn't it? In fact, just yesterday, um, there was a little bit of a lull between commitments, and I laid down on the beanbag chair with a book to read. Which, if you lay down in that beanbag chair with a book to read, it means taking a nap. Um, so anyway, I woke up, and Papa Russell sitting in the chair, taking a nap. And Pepper, our dog, was on the floor, taking a nap. And it is a little bit eerie, isn't it? How much sleep can look like death for a person or for a dog. We even have the saying, he was dead to the world, which means like a really deep sleep, right? So here's the point. Whenever I do a funeral, oftentimes I mention Ecclesiastes 7.2. It says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. In one sense, I mean, I'd rather go to a reception and, you know, party it up and dance, you know, wedding reception. But in one sense, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Because this is the end of every person. And the living need to lay it to heart. You need to come to terms with the fact that you're going to die. Well, back to the beginning. We all woke up this morning. We all woke up on resurrection morning. You participated, whether you knew it or not, whether you realized it or not, you participated in a rehearsal this morning. You woke up on resurrection morning. This morning is actually a preview or you could say a dress rehearsal. Like, listen, no matter what you believe, you need to know there is a day coming. The resurrection day is coming. The prophet Daniel speaks of it in chapter 12, verse 2. And those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Sleep. You hear the euphemism there for death. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So, Resurrection day is coming to everlasting life for those who are trusting Christ or everlasting death for those who reject him. New heavens and new earth or hell 
Either well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, or depart from me, I never knew you. That day is coming, and this day is a special opportunity to prepare for it. This is a dress rehearsal for that day. So as human beings, we naturally fear death. We fear the unknown that comes after death. The reason why the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, de from the dead is such good news is that he leads us through both with great and unshakable hope. So this morning is a rehearsal. We are all going to wake up one day. And you're either going to wake up to everlasting joy and perfect love and utter and complete newness, or you're going to wake up to everlasting torment. The utter absence of God's special or common grace cut off from Him. So, simple question, are we all ready? Are you ready? Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, Wake up, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. That's what we need this morning, to make sure we're awake. So back to that story of the little girl. Talitha kum is an Aramaic phrase. Talitha literally means, as the text says, little girl. Okay, It's a term of endearment. Could be translated. It actually could be translated "lamb," like little lamb. Any any of you have a mother that calls you little lamb, or you know an aunt that calls you little lamb, or you heard her call other children little lamb. So a good modern parallel expression would be sweetheart or honey. So Jesus walked into that room, took that little girl by the hand, her cold, lifeless hand and said, Talitha Kumi. Kumi means arise. But it's not like a formal command, you know, thunder down. It's not some magical incantation that he uttered mysteriously. It's a quiet command that's probably best captured by something like, it's time to get up, honey. So why did Jesus say that she was just sleeping? Tim Keller helps us put it all together. Jesus is facing death in this room as he approaches this little child, the most implacable, inexorable enemy of the human race. And such is his power that he holds this child by the hand and gently lifts her right up through it. Honey, get up. Jesus is saying by his actions, if I have you by the hand, Death itself is nothing but sleep. When you are spiritually awake by the grace of God, and Jesus is your Savior, and He has you by the hand, then you can fall asleep in faith, knowing that you will wake in your Lord and Savior's presence. I remember something that David Powson, Christian counselor, wrote years ago. He was facing some very serious life-threatening surgery, and he said, I'm either going to wake up in a hospital bed, or I'm going to wake up in the presence of Jesus. And then beyond that, Jesus' resurrection is evidence. It is the certainty that we shall rise again. All things made new. 
He's the firstborn from the dead, the beginning of the resurrection, the newness to come. In Adam all die, in Christ all who trust in him will be made alive. So this world can be like a bad dream, like a nightmare at times, like a living nightmare, sadly. But one day we are all going to wake up. And if you are trusting in Christ, it is going to be a relief. Weeping tarries for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And the great morning is coming. coming. So the suffering of this life is like the dusk before the dawn. And today, Resurrection Sunday, is testimony to the fact that the new day is dawning. Jesus is alive, and we will live. Dostoevsky, the famous Russian novelist, wrote The Brothers Karamazov, and in that book he says this, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for and will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all that has happened. That's not a pipe dream, brothers and sisters. It's not naive optimism. This is what's coming. Revelation 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the resurrection morning. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So we're going to close by singing a couple songs, which will probably help warm us all up a little bit. So if the band wants to come on up, I want to close by reading one page, just the end of this story in Mark 5, the little children's version that captures it so well, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And then I'll pray and we'll sing. So Jesus walked into the little girl's room, and there, lying in the corner, in the shadows, was the still little figure. Jesus sat on the bed and took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. The little girl woke up, rubbed her eyes as if she just had a good night's sleep, and leapt out of bed. Jesus threw open the shutters and sunlight flooded the dark room. Hungry? Jesus asked. She nodded. Jesus called to her family, bring this little girl some breakfast. Jesus helped and healed many people like this. He made blind people see. He made deaf people hear. He made lame people walk. Jesus was making the sad things come untrue. He was mending God's broken world. And one day, he's going to make all things new. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this resurrection morning. We thank you for the resurrection morning 2,000 years ago that made it possible for us to celebrate this one. 
that made it possible for all who trust in you to be made alive together with Christ and saved by your grace and made it possible and certain that one day you will make all things new and death will be a distant memory and we will enjoy fullness of joy forever at your right hand in your presence all things new Lord would you help us to set our hope on you may this living hope fill us with hope and confidence and encouragement and I pray that this Resurrection Sunday would be a preview and preparation for that final resurrection plan when the new day dawns and everything is made now. In Jesus' name. Thank <laughs> you.